kind of know what a normal cervix looks like and, and you can't see me now but I'm actually putting my hand together like a fist and that kind of I always describe that as to the patient almost what it looks like oh I would say it's a donut end on hi this is GP's Talk Cancer brought to you by Gateway C I'm Dr Rebecca Leon and joining me through this podcast is Dr Sarah Taylor we are both practicing GPs and GP leads for Gateway C We're both really passionate about diagnosing cancer early and we want to use this podcast as a way of sharing some of our clinical experiences with you so you can make a better, faster and more confident cancer diagnosis in primary care. So there's some official stuff to make you aware of. We know this podcast might be of interest to anybody, but it is really aimed at primary care health professionals. And although all patient cases are based on real stories from our clinical practices, GPs, they are fully anonymised with no identifiable patient data. Gateway C is funded by the NHS and is part of the Christie NHS Foundation Trust. So that's the formal bit done. The kettle is on and it's time to start the podcast. And today we're going to be talking about cervical cancer. Joining me is Sarah. And we also have Dr. Ellen McPherson. She's a junior doctor working alongside us with the Gateway C team. How are you, Ellen, today? I'm good, thank you. Good. And Ellen, we need your your weather update because we're always fascinated by Scottish weather. It's beautiful here today. Excellent. <laughs> Sunny, blue skies, the sheep are in the fields. It's oh, great. God, it it's not so quite fun. like that at Media City. It's, it's, it's sunny enough, but no sheep. <laughs> <laughs> so let's run through some cervical cancer statistics. As you all know, I do love a statistic. There is over 3,000 cases in the UK diagnosed each year. So not a huge number, but it's still significant and it's actually the 14th most common cancer. What we have to remember though, unlike other cancers, is with cervical cancer, the highest instance is in women aged between 30 and 34. So as you know from previous episodes, we like to discuss um, a couple of cases and today I'm going to be talking about a case that I saw or followed up at the end of last week. And this was one of a patient who presented following an initial telephone consult with a colleague of mine. She was in her early 40s and she'd called about six weeks ago just to give a bit of a history of this patient because it puts things um, into perspective. She'd had a baby early 2019, no pre or postnatal issues and she actually quotes looking back she'd had symptoms for a while and actually after she'd had the baby she breastfed for a few months and she said her periods were um, not what they'd been previously she was started on the mini pill and she said they were more irregular and she also described uh, spotting in between periods otherwise known as intermenstrual bleeding it wasn't until she started having postcoital bleeding that she actually got in touch I think discussing it with a friend the friend says you know go and have a chat with the doctor. So she spoke to one of my colleagues and it was over a telephone consult um, and described some of her symptoms and they felt initially that she should have um, an ultrasound done and that was organised by the telephone. And it was also noted that she'd actually had not had cervical screening for uh, quite a while and she put that down to being pregnant and also because of COVID. And um, she had a follow-up with me, um, ultrasound was normal and first thing that I wanted to do was 
examine her. Just to also say she'd done some self-swabs, which had all come back completely normal. So um, that was reassuring in that point of view. But actually, nobody had visually had a look at the cervix. So she came in, examined her, and actually... I was concerned. Uh, There was an obvious abnormality on the cervix and I referred her for um, an urgent assessment. And I suppose the learning points from this, Sarah, and I'd be interested to know if you would have dealt with this same way, was, you know, telephone consults now are a thing and I think they have a real part of general practice. We are now doing a, a lot of remote consultations but how important is it to examine? I think when you, because I know you did the Gateway C module on cervical cancer, and that was absolutely the key message that I got from that was that, yeah, you know, it's very easy to attribute all of these things to, to particularly to hormonal contraception. It's really common. The POP, you know, the progesterone only pill causes so much irregular bleeding um, that actually it's really easy to attribute all of it to that and I think that actually going ahead and just seeing the patient I tend probably at the first uh, um, consultation to bring them in examine them take the swabs myself slightly more accurate if they take if we take them ourselves Um, and then you've got an opportunity to visualize the cervix Um, I probably wouldn't do a pelvic ultrasound at that stage if she didn't have pain I think if she's got abnormal bleeding you're less likely to pick anything up but you know I think that I think visualizing is the important thing the other thing is also being you know thinking about her cervical screening at that stage when she's symptomatic it's not the appropriate time to do it is it it's not and and this lady was a a real covid casualty um just because screening wasn't happening during COVID and she's probably not really had one since kind of 2017 Um, and um, she said that she'd been sitting on symptoms for a while so I think you're absolutely right that if I'd spoken to her during that telephone consult I probably would have actually booked that face to face and say I really want to see you. I always take swabs myself. I mean, the links between swabs, what what kind of things are we we testing for? I suppose we're just checking for particularly um, chlamydia, aren't we? Because that's the thing that can cause intermenstrual bleeding and postcoital bleeding. So um, that's what we're checking for. And I think to be thorough with all of these patients, it's just always worth checking. That's certainly my practice, but I work in a practice with an awful lot of young people who are very accepting of us taking swabs all the time. Yeah, and just to t- talk a bit about statistics, there's 3,200 around that number diagnosed every year in the UK. It's actually the 14th most common cancer. And over half of those are diagnosed in women under the age of 45. So we don't see that, you know, with a lot of our other cancers, we say a huge risk factor is age. But there is this almost double incidence with cervical cancer. So it's a proportion, a large proportion are diagnosed, as I say, under the age of 45. But there is another peak incidence about 10 years after the menopause. So this is another group. And this was, I think, off air, we were talking about your case. Yeah, it was a much, much older woman who was in her early mid-70s, had engaged with screening, but I think if I look back on it, probably dropped off around the age of 50, um, just because she'd been in the same relationship for a long time. She was 
asymptomatic. It was she was um, I think she'd been sterilized, so she wasn't using any hormonal contraception. It just really I think forgotten about it all, and then in her I think she was about seventy two, came in having had some abnormal bleeding um, vaginal bleeding which obviously she hadn't had for about 20 years and was understandably concerned about it I think those sorts of patients are much much easier because it's a totally abnormal symptom isn't it it's something that it's a real red flag symptom bleeding and um, vaginal bleeding in a woman of that age who's not on any sort of hormone treatment at all and so I, I referred her straight away I, I actually did examine her but I know that some, you know it, it is off-putting for some women because they do find it quite uncomfortable and I think that with a I don't know what you feel but I think with a postmenopausal bleed I would refer anyway even if I wasn't able to examine yeah absolutely so women of that age with any any kind of postmenopausal bleeding is as you say it's a bit more barn door and that would I I would be sending um, for an urgent review I mean can I just go back to your patient because I think one of the issues is obviously you know we've been GPs for quite a long time me longer than you but actually we've seen quite a lot of cervixes over the years um, and I think there's a real issue and it's something I was just going to ask Ellen about um, is how many cervixes you've seen and how you tell because we see a lot of ectropians as well don't we what your level of confidence would be in actually telling what was a normal variant and what was abnormal and whether you've got any resources that you might use to help you with that so before ellen answers this what is the plural of cervixes (laughs) (laughs) is it cervix i is it cervixes or is it just cervix i don't know like sheep Anyway, maybe we could look that up during the podcast. Okay, and we'll let you know at the end. (laughs) Because it's obviously the burning question for the whole podcast. So the answer to your question, I think you're absolutely right. With all these things, the more you see, the more you know what's normal and abnormal. And actually, when I was putting together this Gateway C module on cervical cancer, the specialist that I was talking to actually talks through normal and abnormal cervixes. So you kind of know what a normal cervix looks like and and you can't see me now but I'm actually putting my hand together like a fist and that kind of I always describe that as to the patient almost what it looks like. Oh I would say it's a donut end on. Donut end on or I just <laughs> put a fist and I always kind of just describe where we're going to be like examining. Anyway, ectropians which are so common and particularly with um, when you're on hormonal contraception we see it frequently and they can be the cause of bleeding and that's um, but this module almost taught me about these other follicles and these other things which are benign, but actually looks very abnormal to the naked eye. But I don't think gynae would be upset with you for sending this kind of thing in. I would rather... She's shaking her head. I am, because with my... Um, Go work. on with her with her cancer research UK. Yeah, has. with my Greater Manchester role, there are an awful lot of young women referred with ectropians. No, I'm not saying not ah, saying okay. ectropians. No, no, I'm talking about these kind of weird and wonderful. Yeah, I think anything that what's they weird. called nebothlian follicles. What's they called? Nebothlian follicles. Nebothlian, yeah. yeah, those. They, they look so abnormal. How, so, Ellen, how much have you? How many? I don't know. How you've made me think, overthink it. How many abnormal cervix have you seen? <laughs> I don't think I've ever seen a single abnormal cervix, no. Um, and how, so how is it taught when you're either at medical school or a junior doctor? Or do you um, just get taught what's normal? At medical, we're taught using the terrible models that are, yeah. you know, like made of leather. Um, and with the, uh, and with like, the speculum? 
Yeah, with yeah. the speculum. Yeah, Speculi. yeah. Um, and I mean, they're horrible because everyone's put the gel in them and they go all sticky. Uh, um, I, I examined once at the medical school and I was doing a, a station where they were doing um, speculum examinations. And by the end, by the last student, there'd been that many speculums and that much jelly put in that they were firing straight out of the model. Yeah. And so these poor students uh, were trying to do their exams and these speculums are firing out. That's hilarious. <laughs> it's like a scene from Austin Powers. <laughs> Yeah, um, it's not very realistic. So, so, so they all look—they uh, all look normal, do they? Or do they not just look like yeah. anything? And then sometimes they'll show you pictures mm. of what an abnormal cervix looks like um, as part of the exam, i.e., to have you, you know, imagine. Okay, this is what you've seen. And then, you know, I've did placements in GP, but but not for very long. Um, and yeah, so no one ever came in with a and clearly abnormal cervix when when I was so it's quite a, training it's, it's quite an issue isn't it you know recognizing what's normal and what's abnormal on something that you don't see very often yeah and I suppose when we talked about prostate last week it's the more you feel the more you know what's normal and abnormal and it's the same the more you do the more you experience so I suppose we'll be saying to our staff our junior colleagues look as, as many cervixes as you can mm. Whatever the floor about me. <laughs> That's our strap line. <laughs> um, so, I mean, you, you corrected me, rightly so, about not just referring everything in and um, because the service will be saturated and we need to know. And also, I think that what the specialists locally have been saying is that if you send a 26, 27-year-old woman in telling her her cervix looks abnormal, the amount of anxiety and stress that causes to that individual patient is huge. Now, obviously, if you've got a concern about it, that's absolutely the right thing to do. But if it is an ectropian, then it's not the right thing to do. And I think we, we it's... An, but I suppose the bottom line would be that we do have the benefit of experience. And if anybody is concerned, it's better to refer and be wrong than not refer and be wrong. Absolutely. So I know that you've been reading up about this, so share the details that you've got on the risk factors for cervical cancer because I think it's a slightly different one from some of the others and there are things that we can do and we can promote to try and decrease the incidence. Yeah, so again, the Gateway C module talks a lot about risk factors but also I I did a lot of reading on the Cancer Research UK website because um, I am interested in educating patients about potential risk factors. So smoking is a big one. Whatever age we encourage our patients to actually stop smoking can improve their chances of not getting cervical cancer. And what about HPV then? Because that's the real big thing, isn't it? It is. So um, while I'm on a roll, I just want to tell you about the other risk factors and then I'm going to talk about HPV at the end. Okay. Very quickly. Family history. Always take a family history. Really important. Interesting. Women who have had children are at increased risk of cervical cancer. Is that independent of sexual risk, sexual part? Is that related to HPV, do we know, or not? Don't know. Um, Fair enough. (laughs) The contraceptive pill is also linked. Small risk, but just be aware of it. So it's just important... But the contraceptive pill could reduce the chances of other cancers. So it's as does having children. Exactly. <laughs> so you don't know what you okay. So and and the other big one is um, attending for cervical screening and the HPV vaccine. And I'll be talking about the HPV vaccine shortly as the screening program. But you asked me about HPV. So HPV is a virus, human papillomavirus. That's what it stands for. 
It's a virus that actually 98% of people in their lifetime will probably, or sexually active people, will come across in their lifetime. But our natural immune system will actually rid of the virus naturally. There are different types of HPV. And the two most common ones that cause 70% of cervical cancer cases are HPV-16 and HPV-18. These are used in the HPV vaccine, which is now given or encouraged for secondary school girls and also they're offering it for boys as well because HPV can cause other types of cancers, including penile, anal... Head and neck. Head and neck is a big one for head and neck. So I've just been doing a, got a module on head and neck for gateway yeah. C. So, but HPV in related to cervical cancer, 16 and 18 are the most common and they cause 70% of cases. So are, are we optimistic that we will, once we've got HPV vaccine throughout the population, particularly boys as well, mm. that we will eradicate cervical cancer? Hopefully. And there are certain countries that are also claiming, I think they're saying by 2030 or 2035, Australia want to rid their population of cervical cancer. But we have to be encouraging people to still present to their cervical screening. So it's not just, oh, I've had the vaccine, therefore I don't need to attend my smears. That's not true. I think we I think screening is something we need to come back to in a future episode because I think there's an awful lot of we can talk about about trying to increase screening in primary care how we encourage patients and I think one of the other things that we probably want to touch on today is just the importance um of the LGBT plus community being aware of their risk of cervical cancer it's quite a difficult conversation in certain groups of patients I think there's still a belief in some lesbian women that they don't need screening um, so I think yeah I mean this, th- this again I could I could actually talk about this for the next two hours no I'm not gonna let you though I know you're not but, but just going back to symptomatic patients how you know if we've got a trans patient where how do we have you got how do we even begin to think about if they've got abnormal bleeding okay so um we were going to talk about this on the prostate but actually we ran out of time but again it's a it's an interesting point so with with trans women if they've had surgery the prostate will still remain so if you have a trans woman sitting opposite you this will become relevant to cervix cervixes i promise <laughs> if you've got a trans woman sitting opposite you with urinary symptoms you need to consider could this be any prostate pathology the same will be for a trans man the cervix in a lot of cases will remain so it's really important to ask the patients in, um, themselves because they will know particularly if they've moved practices and you've not got the exact surgical details so if they present with abnormal bleeding or they present with other symptoms, things like abnormal vaginal discharge can also be a symptom of cervical cancer, Um, then you need to consider, could this be an abnormality in the cervix? But again, I really hope if this is a successful podcast series, we will have series two. This will be something that I will be very much gunning about screening and about barriers. Something interesting is the confusion of, of certain names used for the female reproductive system. And um, I don't think the 
programme Naked Attraction. I don't know if you've ever seen that, Sarah. No. Channel 4, this is your homework. <laughs> I'm going to have everybody laughing around me. Just watch one series of, cha- of a Channel 4 Naked Attraction. And it's a dating show where people think it's okay to date naked. No, to choose their date naked. They're basically saying you start it the other way around. I know, she's looking shocked. I'm looking surprised. So basically, the reason why I'm telling you this is because there's these booths of people standing there with no clothes on and you go up slowly. So you start with the legs and they comment on the legs and then they do the bottom half and then they do the top half and then they finally do the face. The reason why this is, is, uh, and it's very good television watching if you've had a long day at work and you just need something to like almost zone out. I watch netball. <laughs> you don't watch netball on television, do you? I do. Oh, okay. I watch loads of netball right, on television. Right, you need television. to watch Naked Attraction. Promise me before the next episode you'll just watch one. You and Ben will love it. And I tell you, you're, you're, you've got four series to watch through. Anyway, the point I'm saying to you is when people are describing, oh, I like this about a certain person, I like this certain person, they get... And when I, when I do my cervical cancer talk to medical students and postgraduates, I start with a, a picture of Naked Attraction and they all laugh because they all watch it. And kind of vagina, vulva, cervix, well, you can't see a cervix, but vagina, vulva, they all get confused with these names because it's... Um, OK, so my point after telling Sarah to go and watch <laughs> Naked Attraction is when somebody is describing any symptoms that they've got, they're labelling the wrong body parts to describe it. So you have to ask the right question. And I think one of the urologists I spoke to said that women are actually quite bad at at telling where they're bleeding from. Um, And sometimes they get vaginal bleeding, rectal bleeding, and sometimes blood in the urine urine muddled up. And so you can't always be sure, um, which is, I suppose, what we were saying to begin with. It's really important to examine people because then we can see what's happening. There you go. And sometimes I do a little diagram to explain which parts. I just draw um, end on donuts to explain. That's your cervix. Yes. But I'm talking about if you're doing like oh back, back, front, and middle bleeding, and that's the kind of thing. Anyway, yeah. the point is whether you. It's. Um, I think today I'm waffling, but um, I really want to just tell you where the name Pap smear came from, Sarah. Would you allow me? Yes. So Dr. George Papanikolaou was a Greek doctor. And he was born in the late 1800s and he died in 1962 at the age of 78. And he created the pap smear. That's Well, that's where it's named after him. If you want to do a bit more history reading, they think that somebody else did it before him, but he's claiming it. It was invented in the 1920s, but first used in 1943 to have a look at the cervix and to take cells to see if they could pick up a precancerous diagnosis. That's really what the cervical screening is. But interestingly, his wife, Mary, was relied upon to be his first patient. So that is is, um, (laughs) an interesting fact. So that's Dr. George Papanikolo. Greek. Greek. So, do we want to come to the learning points from today? I do, because I feel today has been a little bit... Um, because it's such a meaty subject, I feel we have... There's a lot to discuss. There's a huge amount And you discuss. are reining me in a lot today, Sarah. I am, yes. Yes. Um, the body language is reining me in. <laughs> and she's like... But Stop. I think you're absolutely right. I think we need to be very clear about symptomatic cervical cancer. And this is what this episode's absolutely. been. Absolutely. Okay. I think we need to come back to screening, yeah. but we need to dedicate more time to it. Okay. So I'm going to talk about the first clinical point is a full 
and thorough pelvic and cervical examination needs to be conducted in all women presenting with symptoms. Have a look at the cervix. I would say take your own swabs. Yeah. And if you see an abnormal cervix, they need to be referred on the suspected cancer pathway. Yep, I agree. And I think that, you know, one of the big problems is that postcoital bleeding is very common. It's very, very easy to um, decide that it's due to some form of hormonal contraception because so many women are on hormonal contraception. But actually, it's not all due to um, hormonal contraception. And, and some of the delayed cases, I think, are because women have been told just to carry on for a bit and it'll probably settle. So I think it comes back to what you were saying, that we need to examine. Examine. Take a thorough history. There's, there's a lot of risk factors related to cervical cancer. So ask them about family history. Ask them about lifestyle, including smoking. And this can be an added part of your thinking, could this potentially be a cervical cancer? And then just remember, I think the last thing is that a smear is not an appropriate test to do in a symptomatic patient because it's a screening test. And finally, encourage patients to go for the HPV vaccine, particularly younger girls, if they're umming and ahhing about it, that actually it's a potentially preventative cancer and in the future. be grateful we don't have to be amongst all of those teenage girls having their vaccines. Yes. So this has been, I would say, part one of cervical cancer, just because we really wanted to emphasise symptoms and also the importance of examining and seeing as many cervix size as possible. Oh, have you looked up what's the plural of cervixes? And what does cervix actually mean? Services. Cervixes. S C gosh. C E R V I C E S. Services. And what does a cervix mean? It means a tunnel. Cervix etymology. Latin. The word cervix is derived from the Latin the root word cervix, mm. which means neck. For this reason, the word cervical pertains to many areas where tissue narrow to a neck-like passage. Mm. There you go. Like C-spine. Yeah. God, that's confusing. Okay. So cervices and a cervix means a neck, as in neck of womb. Excellent. So thank you for listening today. Apologies for being a bit waffly got a lot to say uh, we've also got a free cervical cancer module that we've referenced throughout and you can find that on the gateway c website we put all the references to the studies and guidelines that we mentioned in our show notes we've got a few thank yous as well that have carried me along today a big thank you to sarah and ellen for joining me and thanks to our producers louise and joe louise is with us from gateway c and joe from rethink audio before we go, I wanted to just clear up and discuss the positive predictive value, which is something that we touch on in a few of the episodes. The positive predictive value was used to determine the threshold to encourage clinicians to refer on for a suspected cancer pathway or for urgent tests. And this was agreed at 3%. For more information, we have attached the link via the show notes, and this is through the NICE guidelines, and I would encourage all listeners to have a look at this and understand this in more detail. Please do press the follow button so you can get this podcast direct to your feed, and we'd love it if you share this podcast with your friends or colleagues. It really does help spread the word. Thanks, see you next time, and bye for now. <laughs>